with our look at the book of Acts. So you might like to keep your pew Bible open to Acts chapter 12, page 893 in the pew Bible, page 893. And um, I guess we need to establish who we're talking about here. Uh, And actually there are four Herods mentioned in the New Testament. Um, Herod the Great, he's the granddaddy of them all. Um, Herod the Great, he's the guy who was responsible for uh, killing all of the male children two years old and, and, and younger when we look at the birth narratives of Jesus in, in, um, in the Gospel of, Na- of Matthew. Uh, he ruled over Judea from 37 BC until he died in 4 BC. So that was Herod the Great. The Herod in the Gospels who ordered the death of John the Baptist and who mocked Jesus, was Herod the Great's son, Herod Antipas, also known as Herod the Tetrarch. And he ruled Galilee and Perea from 4 BC to 39 AD. Um, And this same Herod is also mentioned briefly in the book of Acts in chapter chapter 13, verse 1. Um, He married, and this was the start of the trouble for John the Baptist, he married, as you may remember, his brother Philip's wife, Herodias, who, as you can see here, is actually their niece. Now, the Herod that we met today in um, Acts chapter 12 is Herod Agrippa, or Herod Agrippa I, the grandson of Herod the Great and the nephew of Herod Antipas. And he ruled as king of Judea, Galilee, and Samaria from AD 41 to AD 44. And then the last Herod that we'll meet in the New Testament Um, is uh, one we meet in Acts chapter 25, where uh, Paul is on trial in the city of Caesarea and uh, King Herod Agrippa II comes to attend that trial. Well, this is the son of Herod Agrippa I and therefore the great-grandson of Herod the Great. Well, one thing to understand with respect to all of these Herods is that they understood themselves to be the true ruler the true king, the true holder of the royal throne in Jerusalem. In other words, they understood themselves to be, while they reigned, the king of the Jews, the son of David, the son of God, the Messiah. Um, But Herod the Great was not biologically descended from King David, nor from Israel. In fact, Herod the Great was Idumean. Uh, In other words, he was from the land that in the Old Testament is called Edom, a country to the south of Judea. And therefore, he was a descendant of Esau, uh, Jacob's twin older brother. So sure, he was a descendant of Abraham, but he's not Jewish. He's not descended from Abraham through, through Jacob, through Israel. He's Edomian. And actually, it was as an Idumean that he had conquered Jerusalem in the first place in 37 BC. And then later, he and his family converted to Judaism. Of course, obviously, the purists wouldn't have been satisfied. Uh, They knew that he wasn't really descended from King David. But actually, the whole family, the whole family became passionate defenders of Judaism and Jewish things, uh, like the temple. Indeed, it was Herod the Great who built the temple in which Jesus sat and taught. So then, on the one hand, uh, the Herods were very, very antsy. They were very, very, very irritable when it came to the question, who was the real king of the Jews? That, That wasn't a good kind of discussion to have with them. 
They were very touchy about that. And yet, on the other hand, the Jews remember the Herodian dynasty. They remember it actually most fondly. Uh, these guys were passionate defenders of Judaism. And Herod Agrippa in particular, he's remembered in the Talmud and in the Jewish encyclopedia most fondly as a devout, friendly, and compassionate ruler who ruled with self-control and moderation, hating the evil consequences of unbridled passion and tyranny, as he had witnessed firsthand in the company of his close friends, Claudius and Caligula in Rome. He didn't want to be like them. So I guess, really, one question is why? Why then, in our text today from the book of Acts, why did Herod Agrippa want to persecute Christians? Well, we're not told directly, but if we know something about the family we'll see that he has a vested interest in destroying any gossip about there being any other king of the Jews. Furthermore, a message about a man who was claiming to be divine would have in his ears sounded like blasphemy, the kind of blasphemy that the Romans themselves, the Caesars went in for, deifying themselves, and all of the horrific consequences that flowed on from that. And so, understanding Christians to be these kind of blaspheming people. He had in verse 2, James, the brother of John, put to death with the sword. And then he fixed his attention on Peter. Peter was arrested, put in maximum security prison, awaiting the end of the Passover festival when criminal trials would recommence. Four squads of four soldiers, taking it in turns, guarded him 24 hours a day. Doubling up on what would have been the normal treatment for a criminal, Peter is shackled not just to one soldier, but actually Peter is shackled to two soldiers, one on his left and one on his right, and the other two standing guard outside of a locked door. So, verse 5. So Peter was kept in prison, but the church was earnestly or unremittingly praying to God for him. Peter and the church may have reasonably presumed that this night, the night before his trial, would be his last night. That would have been an entirely reasonable, reasonable understanding. Jesus had warned his disciples again and again that to follow him was to invite persecution and death. And if God was not willing to step in in order to save James, then why Peter? But we hear about Peter on the night before his presumed death, and he is fast asleep. Well, I'm glad that he could sleep. I'm not sure if that's a reflection on his personality or on his spirituality or both, but I'm glad he could sleep. So deeply, it would seem that when God's angel arrived and takes Peter and prompts him awake, it takes actually a long time for Peter to come to his senses, doesn't it? A long time. Suddenly, like a child, Peter needs instruction. Wake up, Peter. Get up, Peter. Get dressed. Put your tunic on, Peter. And your sandals. That one goes on that foot. Would you like me to help you tie that? Put your cloak on, Peter. Maybe you should follow me, Peter. 
And indeed, Peter continues in this kind of dreamlike trance until, having exited the cell, passed two lots of sentries, exited the prison, walked uh, through an iron gate that separates the the prison complex, which is part of the temple compound. It's separated by an iron gate into the rest of the city. That opens by itself. He walks down the length of one street, and suddenly the angel leaves, and Peter comes to his senses. Right, the coffee kicks in. Like me at about 11 a.m. And in all of this, we see two things. We see two things very clearly. Firstly, we see that what's happened is a supernatural miracle. Because what's happened is completely impossible at every turn. You know, soldiers on duty, soldiers, Roman soldiers on duty do not fall asleep. Not when their life is at stake. They don't fall asleep. And you know what? Iron chains don't simply fall off. And guards that have fallen asleep can be relied upon to wake up when a light goes on and people start having a conversation around them about how to get dressed. Locked doors don't open by themselves. Sentries generally do notice if doors open and people walk through. Iron gates that are closed at dusk and designed to keep prisoners in and possibly rioters out don't just mysteriously open all by themselves. That's what the first thing we notice. This is an astonishing multi-phase miracle. Extraordinary. The second thing we notice is that Peter contributes nothing to it. Nothing to his escape, except perhaps the bare minimum of compliance. This is a miracle. This is God at work. But as we may have noticed, in this this beautiful miracle, God has a sense of humor. There is a comic overtone, and the comedy continues. Dear sweet Rhoda recognizes Peter's voice for sure, but she is so excited she doesn't think to actually open the door. This leaves Peter standing in the street, a dark street, alone, having just escaped from jail, not able to raise his voice in case he wakes the neighbors. I think my patience would be wearing thin. Inside, there is this major prayer meeting happening, hour after hour, in intense prayer for Peter's release. And when, they told, then when they're told that their prayers have been answered, they accuse the messenger of being literally raving mad. When she keeps on insisting that, no, it's actually true, it might have been an idea, actually, to check But instead of actually checking, they form a theological discussion subcommittee in order to come up with possibilities, hypotheses that could account for this phenomenon. Let's form a committee. All the while, Peter is standing up there, knocking, vulnerable, looking to his left and right. Finally, somebody opens the door. It's funny, and it's meant to be. Then there's a sobering note. In the morning, of course, uh, an accounting is required. And according to a law that was almost universal in the ancient, ancient world, guards who had let their charge escape pay for their shortcoming by um, receiving the punishment that the prisoner would have. 
so the uh, soldiers, I'm not sure if it was the four on duty or the whole 16, um, but uh, they pay for this with their lives. But the story is not over. And the story won't be over until we have a full reversal of fortunes. The point is going to be pressed. We have, um, actually, we have two accounts of King Herod Agrippa's death. Uh, one account of his death is, is the text that we read this morning that Yvonne read to us from Acts, by Luke from Acts chapter 12. And we have another account of his death by the Jewish historian Josephus. And the two stories are remarkably similar. Um, the only thing they differ about is the context. Um, uh, Josephus says that Herod was attending some public games in the city of Caesarea in honor of Claudius. Uh, Luke says, as we've heard, that there'd been dis a disagreement between him and the people of this coastal region. Um, and that they were therefore seeking an audience with Agrippa because they depended upon regions under his jurisdiction, most notably the breadbasket of Galilee, for food. Um, well, these two scenarios obviously are not mutually exclusive. Both could have been happening. Both could be true. Otherwise, actually, they recount the same circumstance. Herod was giving a public speech in his royal robes. Josephus says that the royal robes had been uh, created out of silver thread and they shone so brilliantly in the morning sunshine that the Gentile compliment that was paid was the obvious one to pay. You know, oh, look at you gleaming. Oh, you're not a, you're not a, you're not a man, you're a god. And both Luke and Josephus say that Herod, Herod, failed to correct this flattery. However acceptable, however laudable to Roman ears, such flattery is, of course, blasphemy to Jewish ears. And both Luke and Josephus record the fact that he knew it was wrong not to rebuke or correct such flattery. And both record that he was immediately taken ill. Josephus explains that he experienced a sudden severe pain in his belly and he died in great pain only five days later. He also records the fact that Herod was conscience-stricken. He knew he'd done a foolish thing and that he himself, believed, he himself believed that he was dying because of his failure to correct the crowd. Um, paying with his life for this mistake, aged 54. Um, from a medical perspective, his death may indeed have been due to an intestinal blockage or rupture caused by parasites. Uh, I understand not unusual at that time and place. Um, indeed, um, both Luke and Josephus indeed see his uh, death as the hand of God um, at work in this coincidence. And the story ends with a complete reversal of the start. At the start, we had James dead, Peter in prison, Herod triumphant. N now we have Herod dead, Peter free, the kingdom of God triumphant. And the primary message of the text is obvious. This is it. God is bigger. Nothing is impossible for him. And it is futile to go up against him. Indeed, evil, which by very definition is rebellion against God, is always, evil is always self-defeating. And it says, this is the message of the text. God is bigger. Nothing's impossible for him. It's really, really, really dumb to make him your enemy. It's a simple message. The simplicity of the message should by no means lead us to reject it as simplistic. 
No, no, absolutely not. Quite the opposite. Even though it's a simple message, we should take it to heart and remember it. God is bigger. Doesn't matter what it is, God is bigger. Nothing is impossible for him. And wherever we see things in opposition to Christ, that can't last. And it won't. So that's the message of the text. There are some complexities in this passage and some mysteries. And I think it's worth, before we conclude, I think it's worth pondering three. For me, this text raises questions surrounding three deaths. Firstly, Herod's death. Secondly, the death of the prison guards. And thirdly, James's death. I've got some questions, and maybe you do too. So obviously, I'm going to move down one, two, three, and in doing that, I'm going to move through the passage backwards. But let's begin with Herod's death. Now, I'm not sure if you've ever encountered um, uh, a line of argument from an atheist. I've read it in books and seen it on television. I don't think I've ever personally experienced it. When an atheist basically, you know, basically blasphemes and says, where's the lightning bolt? You see, God doesn't exist because I can get away with all of this blasphemy and no lightning bolt. Therefore, God doesn't exist. Interestingly, in this passage, there is a lightning bolt. There is a blasphemy. And in actual fact, it's, it's, it's an implied blasphemy because he says nothing. It's, it's the smallest sin of omission. And he's gone. Which is all very well if there happen to be some atheists standing by. But actually, uh, hold on. What about Peter's death? Oh, sorry. What about Peter's um, uh, imprisonment? That's at least kidnapping, which in the Old Testament has the death penalty. And what about the, the murder of James? Those things seem to have gone kind of uncorrected by God. But suddenly the smallest thing, and ah, he's gone. Um, what, what, what's, what's kind of happening here? Well, a shallow reading of the text would suggest that actually God's not too bothered by James's murder. And he'll overlook the Peter thing. He can undo that. Uh, but actually, when, when somebody blasphemes God's name, well, then actually, then's the bolt of lightning. A shallow reading of the text would suggest that. But in actual fact, I don't think that's, that's what Luke intends at all. Uh, this death, um, as troubling as it is, I, I think actually illustrates sin perfectly. Uh, Herod is a man who actually does believe in God. Um, at a festival, um, uh, maybe it was the Passover, I'm not sure, but at a festival, he's recorded as having read Deuteronomy 17 for himself, all about how a king should reign. This man believes in God. And, and he tries to rule well, not like Caligula, not like Claudius. But in actual fact, uh, he, he rejects Jesus. And in rejecting Jesus, he's rejecting God. Whether or not he's aware of that, um, and what he's actually doing uh, in this particular sin is the nature of all sin. And that is actually, just for a moment, I think I'll be God. Just for a moment, because it feels so good. And I'll do such and such, or not do such and such. And actually, all, all we're seeing here is something common to humanity, and that is that the wages of sin is death. And we are human beings, 
created in the image of God as his representatives, to represent him and to give him glory. And should we decide to keep that glory and be God ourselves, the universe hates it. Have you noticed how the whole universe, spiritual and material, gangs up on Herod in an instant? Angels kill him and worms kill him. It's repugnant. The universe cannot tolerate and won't tolerate sin. Not forever. The wages of sin is death. We just see it clearly in his death. He gets, this is not just some small sin of omission. It's actually what his whole life is about. Um, uh, The wages of sin is death. But, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus. As sinners, we are in enormous denial as to the seriousness of sin. Uh, it leads to death unless something is done about it. And what was done about it was Jesus died on the cross for us in order that he might take the wages that ought to have been ours. Um, So, actually, it looks kind of flippant. It looks kind of silly. But no, Herod's death says everything that needs to be said. Um, This is where humanity goes when humanity chooses to live uh, um, disconnected from the sun. And particularly with respect to rulers, I think this passage should give us great courage and great perseverance to pray with meaning and authority for the rulers of the nations. When we see rulers and authorities acting in direct opposition to the kingdom of God as revealed in Jesus Christ his son, we can know for sure that such opposition cannot last. And we do well to pray unremittingly for countries where Christians are put to death, knowing that this will not last, but rather that the word of God will soon spread and flourish. So that's a bit about Herod's death next. The death of the prison guards. I'm not sure if you were troubled by their death. Um, It kind of looks like innocent suffering, doesn't it? I mean, what what we have here is God undertaking a covert military action, an extraction from a heavily defended prison in the Middle East. That press is bad, you know, I'm sure this is going to go badly. Um, The prison guards, four of them or 16 of them, what have we got? Collateral damage? Is that acceptable collateral damage? Is God willing to have the, this blood on his hand in order to free Peter? What's, what's, what's going on here? Well, in actual fact, I can't really answer questions like that. Um, all I can simply say is that for me, this is yet another example. These, these deaths of these apparently innocent people is yet another example of the fact that, that um, one of the things about sin is that, and one of the things that we kid ourselves about, about is that when we sin most of the time, actually other people suffer, not ourselves. And that's the way it is in the Bible, and God makes no excuses for when that turns out to be the truth in real life. And those of us who have been called by God to leadership in any form, which is actually all of us, should take this lesson to heart. That when we sin, most of the time, much of the time, although in the end we cannot escape God's judgment, yet and nevertheless, often when we sin, it is those we ought to be protecting, guiding, leading, or teaching who are hurt, not ourselves. That's just one of the things about sin that we're often in denial about, but we need to look and see at work in this passage. Um, Was it an awful shame they died? Yeah. Is that the world we live in? Yeah. James's death. 
Luke gives us almost no information about James's death, um, except the instrument. It was a sword, literally the short sword or the dagger. Uh, I don't think that would have been a pleasant way to go. Um, and the question I have is, obviously, it, I mean, it's great, God, that you saved Peter and all, but why therefore not James as well? I think, I think the, 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 the escape of Peter would have been particularly hard for John and James's other relatives. And again, I can't really answer this except to note that actually God, through Jesus Christ, his son, actually is keeping his word in both instances. James glorifies his Lord by paying the ultimate price for belonging to Jesus. His death is the ultimate witness in anticipation of the ultimate reward. Peter, he is freed from prison. He is going to glorify his Lord by continuing to serve him on earth for a little while longer. But in actual fact, one day for him too, there'll be no escape. Instead of an angel freeing him, he'll stretch out his hands and be bound. And instead of him dressing himself, others will dress him and lead him where he does not want to go. On that day, Peter glorified his Lord in the same way that James did. And I guess... Therefore, the scandal of this text is this. We come to this text wanting to find evidence in it that God is going to miraculously save us from suffering. And actually, that's not what this text is about. Sure, God is merciful and kind, full of compassion and mindful of the welfare of his servant. But life in Christ ultimately is not about escaping suffering, but glorifying God. And for me, the consolation that I take from this text, and it is a very considerable consolation, the consolation I take from this text is that I can glorify God whether or not I'm in for the chop. But to remember the key lesson for us today, God is bigger, nothing is impossible for him, and wherever we see things in opposition to Christ, that can't last. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Help us to glorify you in every circumstance. Amen.